welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Back. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Well, the St. Louis Blues have won four games in a row. All right. Yes. So I'm, I am legitimately happy about that. But I also know that the St. Louis Blues were given to the people of St. Louis by some sort of demon with the intent of breaking their hearts oh, got it. <laughs> over and over again. Okay. So I am reminding myself that they did this last year too. They came yeah. up from behind, came this close to the playoffs, uh, and, and, and faltered. So the fact that they've finally learned how to put some wins together, I need to remind myself that the good vibes I'm getting from that will be all the more painful when they are snatched away. <laughs> I have a number of questions. Some of them make me sound bad. Number one, this is hockey, right? <laughs> yes. That's okay. It's a, a hockey team. The St. Louis Blues okay. play the sport of ice hockey. Okay. Uh, what is the L.A. hockey team? The Kings. The Kings. Okay. Los Angeles Kings. Los Angeles Kings. They now, suck too right now. Do they? Okay. Yeah. My question is this. Now, obviously, you're from St. Louis, so you'll always have some loyalty there. But yeah. I was under the impression that you had fully migrated into... To, the king into king's territory and you're a king's fan no no first. I, I like a lot of angelinos not just with kings but with the sports teams mm-hmm. i am a fan of the la sports team insofar as it does not interfere with okay. my being a fan of my home team okay so yeah i like the kings just fine but when i go to a king's blues game i am wearing blues gear and rooting sure. for the blues yes yeah absolutely which i did a couple weeks ago and blues lost yeah uh. After blowing a lead. That, isn't that just like the, the blues? Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's why they call it the blues. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, well, you had something that was on your mind. Oh, yeah. But, I did. Uh, well, I don't know if I'd say it was. Yeah. didn't like. So because of the Twitter account, uh, uh, film clickbait, I believe is yeah. what it's called. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that until somebody underlines it, it's not a thing I really think about. Uh, clickbait within the film community. I know about it politically, of course. But um, when you have an account that specifically frames like, hey, this thing, it's, click, it's clickbait bullshit. Yeah. Um, now I'm just a bit more aware of it in general. And so while there is an episode to be done about the impact of the clickbait mentality... Uh, on larger film discussions, uh, we were scrolling through IMDb, or I was scrolling through IMDb looking for a top of the show discussion, and I was reminded of the clickbait thing when I threw this out. Uh, at the time of recording, this came out a mere two hours ago from The Wrap. And uh, <clears throat> the question is simply I didn't read the article. Uh, the question is simply Does the Lego 2 movie have a post credit scene? Now, and I guess this gets into the clickbait thing. My first thought is, who cares? Yeah. I mean, that's, Again, a, very that's a big one. All that's a big healthy. one. Yeah. Because the thing that gets me, like, I... I'm kind of hot, or I'm kind of hot or cold on the on the the post credit scene thing anyway i feel like it's overused but at the same time like for something like the mcu i get i get what it is and i get the purpose that it serves it is often either a fun capper or a hint of what's to come yeah which can be fun you know uh the post credit scene like 
the concept of the MCU was introduced in a post credit scene, uh, right. in the first Iron Man. And it was very exciting. Um, and so, because it was such a new idea, um, for, for me and for a lot of moviegoers, but yeah, the, asking if the Lego movie has a post credit scene, it's ultimately saying like, Hey, is this, is there like a little, a little sting there afterwards? Cause it's not like it's going to lead to anything. It's more just, is there another, is there going to be another joke after the credits? Yeah. Um, but you have post credit thoughts. Yeah. Because I think people should, if they can, I understand sometimes, especially when I'm at like a festival, sometimes mm-hmm. you just got places to be, you gotta be on to the next movie or whatever. But I think people should stay to the credits. Yeah. It's respectful, but more importantly, it gives you time to process mm-hmm. except here's what happens. Here's where I wasn't specific enough with my genie wish. Okay. <laughs> is that people sit there and chat until the post credit yeah. scenes come up. The movie's still going on. Yeah. Shut up during the movie. That rule still applies. Yeah. To me, that rule applies even when the trailers are playing before the movie. But I, I understand. I'm willing to say, that like, one, yeah. I, I understand that I'm crazy there. From a, the, from a pure artist vision standpoint, yes. he, they do not necessarily take, they don't know which trailer is going to be playing, so they're not really taking that into account. But, yeah, the credits and the music playing over the credits, that's all still part of the experience. So, yes, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, so I, um, I, I, I think most post-credit scenes are, um, I guess, not really worth it a lot of the times. But right. also, I think that shouldn't be an issue because you should stay for the, you should stay through the yeah. credits. You should show some respect and yeah. take some time to think about the movie as opposed to standing up and immediately saying, "Well, I didn't like it on the walk out of the theater." Yeah, I don't even like people asking me. <laughs> it's always fun when you do impressions yeah. of other of the world <laughs> uh, of everybody else. I don't even like people ask me. Like, I need a good buffer after a movie's yeah. over before. You know, I don't want to immediately be asked. So what'd you think? I don't like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've had somebody ask me that literally the moment the movie is over, like we're not, we haven't even stood up yet or anything like that. The credits haven't even really started or it's the, the directed by it's the first one. Right. And I've had someone say like the title. Yeah. So what'd you think? And I was like, "Uh, but I guess that's, I mean, some people do that. Some people are able to think in those terms. Um, I also, when you were just, just a little tidbit, I also, because of what my job is, which I'm not going to go into, I differentiate between end titles and end credits. Credits, right. Credits yeah. roll. Yes. Anything else is a title card. Yes. And so, um, uh, I don't know what the, I, I don't know what to say, but I, that's what I pictured is the, a person talking to you, not even like while there's still end titles on this. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That is the credit before. roll. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. Uh, I have, been to critic screenings in fact of like big franchise films where it's just kind of assumed that there's going to be a post credit scene mm-hmm. and sometimes there isn't uh-huh. and even and e- i mean it's a now usually those it's usually like a critic and a plus one so half the theater are just normies but uh it's probably more than half probably more than half uh but nonetheless also, yeah it's might be other people who want to contest or that's true. yeah that's true or people who work for the studio yeah but uh and what will sometimes happen is the whole the movie's over the credit the the titles and then the credits uh-huh. uh and people stay and then the credits are over and then the lights come up and just the whole theater goes oh 
And uh, have you? Have you? Oh, oh, I know exactly. What you mean. Like, yeah. Oh, we wasted four and a half I minutes know. of our lives. Oh, well, I guess Marvel movie probably twelve minutes. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But um, yeah, and that I mean, it doesn't necessarily anger me. I get it. Like, hey, we all have places to be, and if you're not the type that watches the credits, then in your mind that was a waste. But to me, it's just like, well, I was going to stay anyway yeah. because. I like sitting and processing and what's more is I'm processing at a time when I'm processing Sorry. I thought I heard something. Uh, I'm processing at a time when the filmmaker, uh, him or herself is allowing me that right. The music from the film is playing. So there's still elements of the film influencing the way I'm thinking. And so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I like that time. I feel like in a way, yes, of course you can read the credits, but in a way the credits can be the buffer that you're talking about as long as there aren't Do you remember when you people and I around went, went to a, a press screening only about four days before the theatrical release of Joss Whedon's the Avengers 2012. Yes. And it did not have a post credits scene. It did that, not. That shawarma scene was, filmed like that week mm-hmm. um and thrown onto the dcp or whatever before it was uh uh given to sent out to theaters yeah because yeah they, i think they they filmed that like while everyone was together for the premiere like earlier that week yeah. that's why um if you notice um the way that captain america is sitting or he's like holding his shawarma or like leaning on his hand so you can't tell that he has a beard because he'd grown a beard for another oh, role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's see, probably maybe for Snowpiercer at the time. Uh, maybe I don't know. Anyway, anyway. Um, so well, we haven't answered the question: Does the Lego Movie Part Two have a? Let's just take a look here. I don't care. Let's pay some bills. Uh, oh, see, I, I gotta click another link. Good see, lord. Let's let's just pay some bills. Okay, yeah, so just real quick, there's a paragraph here, it's the third paragraph, and it starts with, I've actually got two answers to the question of whether the Lego Movie 2 has a post credit scene. I was like, what a... As our friend Jimmy Pardo says, look, everybody's got to have a job. But at yeah. the same time, what a vapid existence. Yeah. <laughs> to just, <laughs> to stretch this question out to a full article, yeah. and then say... And to actually take it seriously. Now I've got two answers for you. Well, some people only have one answer yeah. to if, to does God exist, you know, and you've got two for and like, the movie. like, take your jacket off. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you, would like, you like uh, some water? Uh, I get to have a hundred times I've clicked on a thing that's like the top 10, whatever. And I'll be like, oh, I can't wait to see what number one. But I get like 10 through six and it's like. Click the next page, and I'm like, eh, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's not uncommon that if 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 I click on something and it's a slide and it turns out to be a slideshow, yeah, where it just says it'll give you, let's say it's a top ten, it'll give you the one and says click for the next one. I was like, and I, I it is not. I will often just say, fuck you. Yeah. And then uh, no one's around. I'm saying it to my phone and I feel uh, like yeah. a real jerk. I say in my head, I do the Lana from Archer. Nope. <laughs> That's what I do. Uh, and then I go back about my day. Let's pay some bills. Absolutely. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated, on- curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 
to 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. So, the Mubi Sundance Takeover is in full swing, and Mubi is featuring several Sundance sensations. Um... When I wrote that, I did not expect there to be so many S's, and now I feel uncomfortable. Uh, so, That's uh, my Cobra Commander. <laughs> Several Sundance sensations! <laughs> I don't do a good Cobra Commander. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of sounded like Paul Stanley. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> so uh, one of them is James Gray's uh, Little Odessa, which came out uh, in the 90s. Um, I will read the description here. One of the best debuts of the 1990s, Little Odessa introduced us to so much of what we now love about director James Gray's movies. Operatically sweeping stories grounded in real New York neighborhoods. A love for the cinema of the 70s and an emotional sincerity that is as rare as it is bracing. Uh, So that is Little Odessa starring, um, among others, Tim Roth. And then uh, we talked about this. It's appropriate that this is a... Available on movie right now, it is Deborah, Gran- Deborah Granick's uh, Winter's Bone, mm. uh, which is a film that listeners have probably uh, already seen. But I don't know, actually. I, the movie is nine years old now, and, and it's the thing that really kicked off Jennifer Lawrence. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, nominated for her first Oscar. She was very young. Um, there's a lot of great things about that movie, but it's always interesting. I'd be curious to know. If you didn't see it at the time, let's say you're a little bit younger than we are. If you didn't see it at the time, is it something that is essential and people have gone back to it? I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. On the one hand, I want to be like, I want, I want to think like because Jennifer Lawrence went on to so much, like right. people be curious. But also Deborah Granick didn't make another movie or she yeah. made a doc, one documentary that didn't get wide release, but she didn't make another yeah. uh, narrative feature until this past year with Leave No Trace, which is even better than Winter's Bone. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like he gets talked about that often. I feel this. I mean, it was talking I about I a the, ton. I of bought the, the Blu-ray for four ninety nine at Target. All right, I bet it looks good on Blu-ray. I have it on DVD because okay. um, uh, that was back when I still bought DVDs. Um, I will say that. I mean, similarly, uh, I feel I. That's how I feel about uh, Beast of the Southern Wild, which like because that director hadn't really done anything, yeah. but people, I mean, including myself, like really loved it and really responded to it at the time, and I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. The film hasn't gotten any worse. It just, if a director, I don't know about that. Cause I didn't see okay. it at the time. I saw it. You, that was what? 2012, 2012. So I probably saw it like four years, maybe even five years later. Mm-hmm. And a part of me was like, I guess you had to be there. Cause I didn't get it. It didn't, yeah. did not resonate with me. Um, I don't think it, I don't remember if it made my top 10. There's a lot of things I like about it. I really like the performers and I kind of just like the fact that it, just creates this world that is very similar to ours, but not exactly right. And then just moves forward. It, it does not like say at no point does the film, I know that's I'm speaking in broad terms, but like at no point does the film look at the audience and be like, huh? Crazy. Right. Yeah. It just kind of lets the characters exist, which is something I always like about like a sort of a fantasy world. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and so I'm so listeners. I'm curious. I know that we're in the middle of an ad. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm curious to know if Winter's Bone is a film that you have seen, and if you didn't see it at the time, is it one that you'd heard enough about to prompt you to go back to? Um, and uh, okay, so I'll bring it into the ad, which is if you do want to see it, uh, I've got good news for you. It's available Perfect. on Mubi right now. 
and there's a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now, or you can click on the Mubi ad at BattleshipPretension.com. Uh, this week's episode is also brought to you by the Dice Enthusiast Presents Podcast, a 10-chapter podcast miniseries about four roommates who endure a number of life-changing cha- events while simultaneously playing a board game that lasted for the entirety of 2017. To find out just how crazy their lives got, go to DiceEnthusiast.com or click on the ad at BattleshipPretension.com to listen. And I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com, T-W-E-A-K-E-D-Audio.com. That's where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Do you know what I was listening to today? What was that? On my TweakedAudio.com earbuds. New music from the Pet Shop Boys. Um, Oh, the, I wasn't uh, expecting that. <laughs> yeah, the Pet Shop Boys put out uh, some new music. It's okay, okay, but it is fun to hear uh, that those voices and that, that style again. And also, um, I was surprised because, as you'll hear much later in this episode, the Pet Shop Boys might get uh, might come up again. Oh, all right. Um, anyway, sounding great on my TweakedAudio.com earbuds. Uh, you can get them at a low, low price at TweakedAudio.com. But if you go to if you use the offer code Pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. If debit is your go-to card, discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out discover cashback debit, a game changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Tyler? Yes, David. Let's get into it, shall we? Okay. I'm going to need to take, I'm going to need to have my water at the ready. We've okay. got a lot of talking to do today. Yes. We are going to be talking about the movies that I saw at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival in beautiful, snowy, Park City, Utah, and we did not. Uh, we do not have a guest, so and I didn't go, so it is. It is all on you. I'll occasionally ask a question if I feel particularly engaged. Can't guarantee I will. So, <laughs> uh, take us away, David. So I'm yeah. I'm just gonna uh, go through these movies in the order that I saw them. Um, although one, I think I might have. I think I might have fucked up and talked about it on a movie journal because I saw I did a couple of screenings that, you know, they sometimes they do screenings locally right. before. So I can't remember if I talked about Birds of Passage on the movie journal. Not that I not. recall. OK, so Birds of Passage. I rarely listen to uh, you. Yeah, I true. should say um, is the new movie from uh, well, it was co-directed by Ciro Guero, Ciro Guerra, uh, who made Embrace of the Serpent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Friend of the show, Breonna Davis, mm-hmm. uh, starred in that. He's not in this one. Uh, this one is... A falling out, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, but he, it is, this one is co-directed by Ciro Guerra and Cristina Gallego. And uh, it is loosely based on a true story of a small family of um, Colombian... He's a Colombian filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Colombian, an ethnic native tribe who in the 1970s or starting the late 60s, I think started cultivating and selling marijuana to uh, essentially gringos who were um, in Colombia to facilitate the international drug trade. Hmm. And so this very small family of this small ethnic tribe 
in rural Colombia uh, over the course of the 60s and 70s became incredibly wealthy um, uh, growing and selling weed to the gringos. But uh, if you know Embrace of the Serpent, you know any of his other work, you know that it's, it's even though it's a pretty straightforward frame, uh, framing framework of a story, it has sort of a uh, blow meets the Godfather, mm-hmm. except um, with the specifics of the you know the the tribal uh, rituals and history. Um, it, you know, it's sort of the the rise, rise and fall of a drug whatever type thing. You've seen these kind of movies mm-hmm. before. So even though the framework is very conventional, uh, the execution is often not. He has a a real fascination, just like he did with, with in Embrace of the Serpent with. Um, the 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 land and the nature of the area and of course with the traditions of the they're called Wayu uh the particular tribe and so we get to see the the opening of the movie is a sort of um uh, uh I'm not sure it's like a young girl it's essentially like a Wayu bat mitzvah it's a young girl sort of coming of age ceremony that's this really uh beautiful and very visceral and physical dance um and then throughout you've got lots of close ups of uh very specific birds and insects that are local mm-hmm. to the area some of which we return to more than once i'm sure there's some symbolism i'm sure there's a reason we're seeing right. the same colorful cricket thing uh more than once in more than one location um it's uh, i don't think it's as quite as i don't think it quite hits the heights of embrace of the serpent uh maybe because the framework is a little too familiar but uh it's definitely worth your time all right birds of passage uh, the next one, which I also saw pre-fest, um, is an Irish horror movie called The Hole in the Ground. And um, I, I can't, I'm paraphrasing someone else on Twitter who said the least you can, you know, the least you can say of the movie is that it does not lie. There's a really big hole in, the ground <laughs> in this movie, but it is uh, about a uh, young uh, single mother who is clearly left her husband and the father of her child for, you know, reasons we don't really, we get hints of, but it's not really the point and moved to rural Ireland. Um, and, uh, her son is having trouble fitting in. Um, and then one day he gets sort of lost in the woods for a little bit and then comes back. But when he comes back, he's acting a little bit differently. Mm. And there's a history in this town of another woman who went crazy, who was, uh, convinced that her son had been replaced by an imposter or, mm. or something um and her uh, so she's she's crazy but her husband is played by the character actor uh oh god is it james cosmo something cosmo uh mm. you'd know him if you saw him. yeah um uh, anyway it's um it's not it, it's the kind of horror movie that is just it's not poorly made it's competently made but it's also so much of it is predictable from uh uh from the from the jump and i say jump knowing that there yeah there are plenty of jumps oh, indeed. uh i mean some of the strengths and you of, can jump in a hole if you want uh yeah it's a really big hole um <laughs> some of the and the, those shots are actually kind of nice um of the, of the big hole because it's uh it is pretty breathtaking um some of the specifics like sort of Ireland specifics, although I've looked this up and apparently this isn't an Ireland specific thing, but it's not true in every culture is the idea of <laughs> when you have a wake in someone's home, mm. you, uh, first off the idea of having a wake in the home seems, uh, I mean, I'm 
I come from an Irish background. We had yeah. uh, wakes are at the funeral. We didn't right. have the casket in the home, but I know that's uh, not an uncommon thing. But the idea of covering all the mirrors, mm. um, which I've since realized learned has um, shows up in other cultures too. But uh, uh, those kind of specifics, I think, were enough to keep me interested. But I just. Uh, I wish the movie had more than just a handful of decent scares. You know, it's it's pretty predictable. All right. Man, I'm burning through these. I can take my time uh, going forward. No, I shouldn't do that. Yeah, there's no cumulative uh, Uh, time left. I don't get rollover minutes? Nope. (laughs) Because that would require me to keep track, and I am not. Um, So... Next up, uh, I know when we did our Sundance preview, I let the cat out of the bag that I was only planning on seeing one documentary. Mm-hmm. I stuck to my word. I saw one documentary. It was the documentary that I said I'd see, which is Petra Costa's The Edge of Democracy, which is a documentary about a very specific, a very recent sequence of events in Brazil and in Brazil's government that are pretty infuriating. Um, uh, basically, you had essentially a military dictatorship for decades in Brazil. Finally, democracy was brought back to Brazil. The people chose this um, uh, uh, leader, member of the Workers' Party, uh, uh, who is, his name is, I think, Lula da Silva, but everyone just calls him Lula. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's friends with everybody. He's um, literally, he was, at the time, polling-wise, the most popular politician in the world. Um, uh, you actually see a clip of um, President Obama saying that when he meets him. Um, and then when he, after his two terms were up, uh, another member of his party was elected. Uh, her name I am drawing a blank on right now. Dilma, Dilma Rousseff is her name. Um, and during her second she was also reelected during her second um, term. Basically, some corruption investigations were leaked that really went back decades and implicated pretty much the entire everybody. Everybody, but the opposition party used these as an excuse to. Uh, railroad the Workers' Party and essentially, essentially return Brazil to to its former state. It's still um, it's not a military dictatorship anymore. It's, but it's uh, you've got a very Trump. You've got a Juan Bolsonaro, who's a very Trump type, mm-hmm. who is now currently the president of Brazil, uh, and he is featured in the documentary. His um, signature stance is the Buddy Christ. Uh, okay. So that's the kind of buffoon oh, that he oh is. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, there's even, uh, there's recordings of literally one of the heads of the opposition party and one of the heads of the construction companies that were at the center of the, of the investigation. They were secretly recorded on the phone basically saying, we've got to remove, we've got to impeach and remove Dilma Rousseff basically so we can stop this investigation because if it goes any further, it's actually going to threaten our whole deal. (laughs) Um, So uh, it's pretty awful. And then there's also some, um, some of the crazy, I shouldn't say crazy. Everyone's got their own thing, but some of the particulars of the Brazilian justice system um, don't seem conducive to fairness. Um, Sure. 
in that the prosecutors and the the investigative you have investigative judges where the prosecutor and the judge is the same person so the person who compiled all the evidence against the defendant is also the person ruling on their fate and sentence. I imagine that judge is allowing quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Um, I've gone on too long, but I, I don't. I didn't want to just describe the contents because Pedro Costa. Um, what's it, it's also a very sort of memoirish, personal documentary because her her family has ties on both sides. Her grandfather is the founder of one of these construction companies hmm. that, that, that was, they were all construction companies for some reason that were involved in this corruption scandal. Her, that's her grandfather. But then her parents were activists against the military. Uh, you know, the previous administration who were pro worker and actually went into hiding and at one point were arrested by the, so she's got, family history on both sides of, of this issue. She has a very um, sort of uh, uh, I would say, like flat sounds boring, but she has an almost effectless narration that mm-hmm. kind of makes her rage feel less uh, propagandistic and more potent in right. a way. Like she's right. angry, but she's not yelling at you. <clears throat> yeah. or she's not being snide. She's not being Michael Moorish. She's just sort <laughs> of laying it out. Um, there's also some really beautiful photography. She clearly, she got access to the presidential palace. And so she keeps coming back to these steady cam shots of the presidential palace empty. Basically, I think the implication being, you know, it's up to outside forces who ends up in here. Right. It's actually a great story that one person relates where when the workers party first, um, took over and there was some sort of like gala event or whatever at the presidential palace, and one of the members of the Workers' Party saw one of the like executives from the, one of these big companies at the party and was like, uh, what are you doing here? And the executive said something along the lines of, I'm always here. You guys are the ones who keep switching out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a perfect uh, uh, encapsulation of so much about uh, 21st century and 20th century democracy. No. Uh, there's also a great, I've gone on forever, but there's a, a beautiful, uh, I feel like, Documentaries in general have benefited, but maybe sometimes to the point of now they're overusing the drone camera. Yeah. But when you, when used right, I really like it. And there's a shot because uh, you were, you were sorry on assignment when we have, when we had uh, um, our guest uh, to talk about Brazilian history, right. uh, Brazilian um, cinema history uh, of, a few weeks back. But he talked about, cause he's from Brasilia, which is the capital of Brazil, which is essentially a completely like planned city from the ground up from the mid 20th century. Hmm. There was not a city there. And then they said, we're going to put the capital here and they built the entire city. Um, and what so did they build the city on, uh, <laughs> not what you think. Oh man. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> Sounds lame. Yeah. C- corrupt <laughs> construction contracts. No, um, anyway, so there's this beautiful shot that she's describing the architecture of essentially the, the parliament or the houses of Congress. And there's a beautiful drone shot going over this. And we're seeing this very symmetrical, very peaceful city. And then mm. as we crest over the parliament building, there's a protest in progress. And so suddenly this beautiful, oh. uh, serene, perfectly composed shot is filled with screaming and smoke and flags and it's yeah. a really really great shot yeah protesters do ruin most things yeah is that the point you're making <laughs> yeah exactly. that's what i got yeah why don't they just stay home yeah 
they're just making things hard on all of them. And ugly. It was, nice and, it was nice and pretty up until that moment. <laughs> anyway, okay. What's next? next now, you up. did go double your time there, so that means there's one movie you can't talk yeah, about. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, next up is a movie I won't talk... Maybe I will talk too much about it. Uh, it's called Native Son. I really didn't like it. It's uh, We talked about it on the podcast. It's based on oh. the novel Native Son, but it's, it's not set in the 1930s. Right. It's set in the present-day Chicago. It got pretty good reviews. I know. And I just... I was on the fence for the first half because it makes a lot of very distinct choices in the fact that the, the movie never really rises above a whisper, which is often something that I hmm. that I like. It, it also has extensive voiceover narration, which is also I didn't even really make this connection. Also, the 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 lead the lead actor Ashton Sanders, I think is his name, um, also delivers it in a very flat way. Hmm. It didn't work as well for me here as it did in the okay. democracy. I found a lot of the voiceover to be unnecessary, to be sort of spelling out things that were that were already should have been clear visually. Yeah, but the movie again for the first half or so, I was really do you trying think they, to like. Do you it. think they were trying to like directly bring in stuff from the book? I assume the narration oh, is from yeah, the book. Maybe I have not read the book because I think I said in the preview okay. uh, episode. Maybe that's what it is. Uh, I was still trying to hang with it. There's some really good stuff. You've got, so Ashton Sanders plays a, um, uh, a sort of recent, I guess, recent-ish, he's like 20 or something, so recent-ish high school grad who has a delivery job but then gets this job, very well-paying job, being the driver for a fabulously wealthy family, mm-hmm. the uh, patriarch of with it, which is Bill Camp. All the right. mother is Elizabeth Marvel. Uh, do you know her? I don't think um, so. You know her. Did you see... Um, I'm a drama blank on the uh, Netflix uh, <coughs> The Meyerowitz. No, I didn't. Uh, okay, well, she's in okay. that. Um, and uh, so he gets the job. the 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 daughter is a, uh, and, and this is the part I like the best because it's the for the same reasons I like Get Out is that I really like uh, incisive portrayals of out of touch liberals mm-hmm. who are on the one hand yeah it's great that they're like their hearts in the right place they're very progressive but also yeah. they're condescending most of the time oh yes um even if they don't mean to be and they often so there's this this girl who's like a political activist is also constantly laying out these microaggressions if you will uh to to big and i, I big is the character's name um and uh uh that stuff was was it was interesting, but then the movie takes and if you've I guess I hadn't like I said I haven't read the novel. If you've read the novel, you know the turn it takes. It takes a huge turn about halfway through, and as the thing was happening, I was like, okay, this could much like the question of whether or not there's a post credit scene <laughs> in the second Lego movie. There, there are two possibilities here. Oh, sure, sure. And I was like, this could really juice this movie, or this could be the stupidest thing. I would and love if for the rest of our podcast <laughs> forever, anytime, anytime we were talking about two possibilities, yeah. we just reference this article. All right, we'll try it. I'll, try I'll, do, I'll do my best. Um, and I was like, this could be, uh, it was really, really bring this thing, elevate this movie, or it could be really stupid. And almost immediately, I was like, oh, it's going to be stupid. And I think I I could never get back hmm. into the movie after that. The, the voiceover narration became, if anything, more on the nose. The second half feels like it goes on forever. 
um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but because I think the cinematography is nice, I think the sound design and score are um, uh, sufficiently unsettling, but um, uh, it didn't didn't really work for me. Okay, it's only it's one of only I would say three. Well. I didn't say nice things about the hole in the ground, but there are only three movies I would out and out say that I didn't like okay. at at Sundance this year, and Native Son is one of them, the only one of them so far. Okay. Um, although now I am drawing a blank. Oh yeah. All right. All right. Right. Okay. So next up is one of my favorite movies at the festival, and it was sort of a late addition because I didn't know much about it. But then, like a couple days before the festival, I think after we'd done our preview, uh, I was reading. Um, uh, the great guys over at the film stage uh, did their did a, a like sort of last minute post of like here's some things we're really looking forward to, mm. and they <clears throat> highlighted this Japanese movie called We Are Little Zombies, which is a feature feature directorial debut um, by uh, something Nagahisa. I can't remember his first name, but um, this is a story of four children all around thirteen don't know each other, but are all, all become orphans on the same day. All eight of their parents in various different ways all die on the same day. They meet. Is it at, meant to be funny? Uh, yes. Okay. Good. They meet at the crematorium where their parents are being cremated. <laughs> oh boy. And decide instead of going back to their new legal guardians or foster homes where they're yeah. supposed to go, they run away. And then they, after they run away, they become a rock band using instruments they found at the garbage dump. And then the rock band gets discovered and becomes the new pop sensation in Japan. And they're the biggest thing in Japan. Um, it's, uh, it sounds pretty fun. And it's, and so as, as sort of, uh, Gonzo is that story is Nagahisa's style is right up with it. It's the movie is full of constantly shifting, uh, constantly cutting an- camera angles, shifting lenses, uh, color filters. There's, some CG and other sort of uh, adornment, and it's the movie is just uh, it. It just it's a full two hours long, but it is relentless. It never stops. Yeah, and uh, I I really dug it. I really think that it's um, also a good, an interesting look at the idea of whether or not it's possible or why it might be tempting to you know better living through distraction you know right yeah yeah not facing reality but basically just like playing video games or listening to music or doing things other than engaging yeah as a as a coping mechanism becomes just a way of life yeah um but i don't want to make it sound too heavy it's also a very tongue-in-cheek movie in a lot of ways and the last thing i'll say is that the song, specifically the band's theme song, which is called "We Are Little Zombies," mm. is so great that and so they do that, and they and then they also do a cover of "This Will Be Our Year," which is one of my favorite songs, which is by the Zombies, which mm. is why they cover that. I would love if they put out like a promotional like seven inch. Oh, that'd a, be great. A side, "We Are Little Zombies." B side, "This Will Be Our Year." I would buy that in a second because the song is so good. Mm. Uh, both songs are so good, and then there's a. There's also a third song they do uh, over the closing credits, which is called "We Are Zombies But Alive." Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's one of my favorite movies of the festival, and definitely a big discovery. Okay, uh, one of my most anticipated movies of the festival that uh, surprised me but did not disappoint me 
uh, is Rick Alverson's The Mountain. Rick Alverson made entertainment and he made the comedy. The Mountain is the story of uh, Ty Sheridan, who is in entertainment, Mm -hmm. uh, plays the lead. Who it takes place in? It's never specific. I would say around late forties, early fifties in rural Oregon is where it starts, but then they end up going on like a road trip type thing. Um, Ty Sheridan, uh, he works. His father, uh, played by Udo Kier, is a figure skating instructor. This sounds like Sundance quirky stuff, but it's not. Uh, He works at the ice skating rink. He's like the Zamboni driver and maintenance maintenance guy. And then his father dies very suddenly, sort of at a loss of what to do. His mother is not there because as we eventually learn, she is in a psychiatric hospital somewhere because she's been where, where she's been lobotomized and essentially doesn't really right. Isn't herself, isn't part of the family. Uh, and then one day while Ty Sheridan is, has set up a garage sale to get rid of some of his dad's stuff to pay bills. Now that his dad's died, uh, Jeff Goldblum shows up as the lobotomist who lobotomized his mother hmm. and basically offers Ty Sheridan a job. Um, not unlike, uh, as someone else pointed this out that I was talking to, not unlike, uh, um, Viggo Mortensen in green book offers him a job as a driver. Okay. He's, I want you to drive me. Cause he's a lobotomist, but he doesn't, he goes from not every hospital has its own lobotomist. He goes from hospital right. to hospital and performs <laughs> lobotomies. Um, and so he wants Ty Sheridan to not only drive him from, hospital to hospital, but also be in charge of taking before and after pictures of all of his patients. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Um, and, uh, Jeff Goldblum and Ty Sheridan are fantastic. They're, they're terrific in the movie. Um, it, I mean, Jeff Goldblum's always good, but it's, uh, you know, I think we've talked about, I can't remember if we've talked about it or not, but Jeff Goldblum sort of buying into his own, identity is a meme to some extent, you know, yeah. and it's sort of not unlike Christopher Walken in, in, uh, catch me if you can. Yeah. This is, this movie definitely serves as a reminder of like, he's not just the goofy guy who makes, you know, who yeah. does the dances and flirts with women and wears the glasses. Like Jeff Goldblum is a serious yeah. actor. The movie, uh, the weekend, uh, also oh, features him. It's it, all the performances are great, but, um, but he's in there in a supporting role in a character that's very Goldblum like, but he imbues him with like a real sadness. The idea that like this guy plays this up as a, as a way of distancing himself so like that's an instance where he even he capitalizes on his own persona and suggests that yeah there when people have these it's usually by design yeah. uh, to keep themselves to keep people from uh wanting to delve any deeper and so yeah no i he's one of those guys that yes everyone like everyone does an impression now everyone just finds him to be so delightful and he yeah. is um that no, he's still he's still an actor, and yeah. he'll still play the emotions that need to be played, and he'll do the job. Um, and finally, I'll say is I, I think on the one hand, this is I mean Rick Robertson's movies of the two that I've now three that I've seen, this one is the least confrontational to the audience, but does not necessarily mean it's pleasant to watch. Right. You know, there's a there's a part where Jeff Goldblum's character, uh, his name's Wally, Doctor Wally Fines. Um, he fucks up the lobotomy and it's a great moment for Jeff Goldblum to play in which he is legitimately distraught and upset about what he's done for about 30 seconds. And then he turns it off, turns to the hospital administrator and is like, bring in the next one. Um, it's a, it's a great, it's a great moment. Um, so I guess, but like I said, not, not the most pleasant movie, but certainly, um, not as, 
relentlessly uncomfortable as entertainment. Um, I ask this, not trying to be funny. What is, what is a screwed up lobotomy? What's the impact of that? Do they talk about in the film? They don't. There's more blood than there should be. Okay. And he says, God damn it a bunch of times. Okay. Um, and we don't, uh, I mean, I think, yeah, we don't really know exactly what will become of this woman. Right. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's upsetting. Um, in a way, like the past two movies, the comedy and specifically entertainment have been about comedy or forms of entertainment expression, mm-hmm. you know, and this movie would seem to be not about that, but I actually think it is especially about that. Um, because well, uh, he's going. You start with from the, hospital to hospital, to hospital. That's not that different than right. like one comedy club but, to another. Well, I'm, but but in terms of expression outside of comedy, you, you've got Udo Kier as a uh, figure skater. That's mm-hmm. a that's expression. Then you've got Jeff Goldblum's character as kind of a director in a sense because mm. he's hired Ty Sheridan as a cameraman and he's like posing, staging these right. these things. And then what I haven't said is the, the final um, destination, which is Mount Shasta, California uh, in Northern California. Um, they meet uh, a, 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 he lobotomizes a young girl played by Hannah Gross. Who's, did you watch Man, Mindhunter on Netflix? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, young cop, the young guy's girlfriend, the, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. the hippie college student girl, um, so he lobotomizes her, and then we meet her dad, played by Denis Levant from Holy Motors, oh. um, who is, in many ways, just as in need of lobotomy. I mean, not that anyone actually needs lobotomy, but is just as unsettled. Um, and he's also like a dance therapist. He has a weird uh, job, and he, but he's also a raging alcoholic. And um, uh, I, I, so I feel like this movie is saying something about Ty Sheridan constantly being in relation to people who are expressing themselves in mm-hmm. certain ways, uh, but that he can't, or maybe he is not willing to sacrifice what they're willing to sacrifice because he wants, he values personal connection over that or something. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 uh, there's a lot going on. Um, there was one last thing I was going to say, and now I've forgotten what it is. Oh yeah. Yes. That's the, the one of the dar- the darkest sort of joke of the movie is that, Jeff Goldblum as a lobotomist is the sort of classic, the guy who, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's willing to lobotomize anyone for anything, <laughs> like anything, anything that's even a little bit off. Um, there's also, like, uh, there's a very, very uh, conspicuous ter- uh, thing where, for most of the movie, all the people he's, the patients he's lobotomizing are women. And then there is a turn that I don't want to say, something happens, and then suddenly it's all men. Hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, it, uh, you know, the two things aren't literally related, but it's clearly Rick Alverson clearly did that for a right. reason. Um, and people will make up their own minds when they see it, which uh, I think is not that long for now. I think it's coming out in like March. Okay. Um, all right. <clears throat> After that, I went to, this is my first, uh, premiere that I attended. Oh, fancy. Um, uh, the, did you do you dress up for it? Uh, no. Okay. At the, I mean, I. It's sort of like I do when I'm at Comic Con. Like I don't dress down. I dress like I do for work. Like I usually have a sport right. coat or, right. uh, you know, at least a nice cardigan or something, and like a you know a shirt with buttons and a collar. I don't because I feel like I'm, I am working mm-hmm. when I'm there, so I don't like dress down. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, yeah. So 
the first uh, premiere I went to at the Eccles Auditorium um, at Eccles High School, which is, I don't talk enough about like the actual experience of Sundance, I think, which is that it's all over town. And also the biggest theater is a high school auditorium, which Sundance goes on for like 11 days. Yeah. Most of those are school days. School's going on. Like, uh, you know, and it's still a ski town. You're still see like people are still yeah. in town to, to ski coming uh, uh, up and down from the slopes. And then we're all just walking around trudging from movie to movie. And I just, the, I feel like the, uh, the locals, I, I, I think they, seems like they don't care that much. I mean, probably the business people care. Although, yeah. Oh, the woman, Woman at the Chinese. Yeah, there's a Chinese place next to where all the um, um, uh, press and industry screenings are that I go at least once every year, um, and uh, they were particularly slammed when in this, there this year, and uh, she was not happy about it. Mm. Um, but the Lyft drivers seem to love it. Uh, yeah, they get plenty of plenty of business. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know uh, how I've talked to locals about how they feel about. Um, I remember one uh, person, our host, actually, or the guy that I stay with, um, said that um, there's a certain type of Sundance goer that they call pibs, people in black, mm. because I guess people who are in Park City to ski or whatever are generally not wearing black coats. They're wearing, you know, right. ski coats, which is usually like colorful or whatever, but the sort of like slim black winter coat is a mark of the Hollywood type, I guess. <laughs> That's probably what I would be wearing if I were there. Uh, yeah. I wear Navy. Um, more versatile, more versatile. Than black. No. Um, anyway, so next, okay. The premiere at the Eccles, the Eccles theater at Eccles high school. Um, uh, honey boy directed by Alma Harrell. This is the movie in which Shia LaBeouf plays his own father. Right. Yes. Shia LaBeouf wrote the screenplay, uh, based loosely on or maybe not that loosely i don't know on his own experience as a child actor living in uh, a, a motel with his father slash chaperone slash driver you know mm. uh essentially his dad uh who is a um alcoholic and ex-con and was on his payroll like he was paying mm. his dad to be his adult chaperone um and so the young shy who's the character's name is otis is played by uh, Noah Jupe from A Quiet Place. Oh, okay. And then uh, Shia's dad is played by Shia. And then, ten, that's, that, so that's 95, then 10 years later, 2005, 10-year-older um, Shia, sorry, Otis, is played by Lucas Hedges, who is, I know acting is about more than just impersonation, but Lucas Hedges is doing such a spot-on hmm tabloid fodder shy like that sort of yeah. late 2000s because um, the movie's timeline is off by like three years from Shia's life I looked it up <laughs> um, uh, so, this is, so he's playing 2005 but it's really like 2008 like second Transformers movie mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Shia LaBeouf and Lucas Hedges is spot on okay um, and then uh, he and so that that story and it goes back and forth between the story of the motel and then Lucas Hedges Otis in rehab where his therapist is played by the great Laura Sanjikamo. And uh, oh, yeah. there's also a physical therapist played by, played by Martin Starr who only has a, a handful of scenes, but is really good uh, as he always is. Um, the, uh, the best part the best things about the movie are the way that uh, Alma Harrell, the, the performances she gets from her actors, which are, uh, 
in, sort of informed by Shia's performance, which is always moving at a million miles per hour, but never in a straight line with never really any idea where he's going. He's, right. he's just, this guy is just a guy who has spent his life just reacting to the moment and not, never planning for anything. Um, and he's also a terrible dad. He, he bribes his son to behave by giving him cigarettes. <laughs> he's a 12 year old kid. Um, uh, and the best parts of the movie, which is most of the movie are the parts that feel like that. The movie really races forward at a, uh, or races all over the place at a great clip. Uh, my only problems with the movie is that I feel like some of the father son moments of like, I wouldn't go so far as to call it resolution, but sort of like the cathartic moments near the end feel a little, not that dissimilar from the made for TV Disney movies that the character is starring in, you know? And, uh, that, that seemed like, uh, it, it, the movie dropped a level, uh, from where it was operating before. But, um, I definitely think it's worth checking out when it comes out. Uh, it's definitely an exciting watch. And yeah, you've got Shia LaBeouf and Lucas Hedges are both great in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Oh, man. Okay. I'm going to need a drink before this one. Well, while you're drinking, uh, I'm going to talk about the Patreon. Um, oh, I was going to do that at the end. Well, I figure, you know, it'd be a nice uh, sort of an intermission. Um, So, yeah, uh, we only announced this last week that we do have a Patreon account now. You can go to patreon.com slash battleship pretension or at battleship pretension.com. You can just click on the Patreon button. Uh, And there are two subscription levels. There's the Petty Officer, which is $5 a month. And the Admiral, which is 10. And Petty Officer, you have access to um, previous uh, premium episodes and then all... Um, yeah, non-commentaries. Non-commentaries. Uh, and then all of our new uh, bonus episodes. Which will which include com- future commentaries. Yes. So, um, and then if you sign up at the Admiral level, then you have access to everything. And then not only would you have access to... Uh, upcoming premium episodes or bonus episodes, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but you will, it didn't work out last week. There were some technical difficulties, but uh, there will be video that goes with them. So if you want to know what it looks like having me and David just sit and talk, yeah. which people do apparently want that. Yeah. Uh, then wanting that. Yeah. Then you can sign up. Uh, Patreon.com slash battleship pretension. Right. So, Yes, thank you, and thank you to everybody who signed up already. Uh, this has turned out, I'll be honest, early on, I was just like, I don't think anybody's going to actually do this. Uh, I, I, yeah, was, yeah. I was nervous, but, uh, but yeah, you guys have shown that my nervousness is just my general lack of trust in humanity. <laughs> um, yeah, and so the first episode is already up, which is, like you said, uh, it's, we talked about the uh, we talked in depth and at length about the Christian Bale rant on the set of yeah. Terminator Salvation. Uh, and then our second episode where I believe we're going to be doing a mailbag, which is going to be a somewhat regular, uh, segment. So that's another fun thing. If you're a Patreon subscriber and you have anything at all, you want to ask us, I'm not saying we'll answer everything, but right. And ask us whatever you think will be fun. Um, and we'll yeah. have fun with it and, uh, you get to hear it on the Patreon. So, Indeed. The, that's yeah plenty of reasons to sign up thank you so much for those who have already done so and for those who will do so in the future uh all right next up okay 
this is a movie I know you were interested in, um, and um, rightfully so. It's a very, very well-made movie. It is the it is Jennifer Kent's follow-up to The Babadook, mm. The Nightingale, which, despite having some horrifying content, is not a horror movie. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a it's a western that's set in. Um, what's now called Tan- Tasmania, they refer, refer to it as Van Diemen's Land, which is that because that's what Tasmania was called before it was called Tasmania. And it is set in 1825, or as Jennifer Kent said, 1825. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. <laughs> and uh, it is about, it's definitely the longest movie I saw there. It's like two hours and 20 minutes, I think. Um, and it is relentlessly brutal. It is... The rare occasion, I don't know if you uh, read my review because I said this, um, you've talked, but we've talked, uh, and I, know, I can't remember who initially said this, that it's like impossible to make an anti-war movie. Yeah. Uh, um, this isn't a war movie, but this is um, kind of like we talked about in the movie jur- journal last week, uh, Cold Pursuit. This is a revenge, a rape revenge movie that is so horrifying, so brutal and unrelenting that it actually is an effective movie about how violence is not the answer yeah. and makes things worse. Even as the movie is filled with violence. Yeah. Um, it's a truly upsetting movie. Um, uh, uh, I can't, um, which to... is so fascinating because when I think of the Babadook, I feel like a film that is, is intensely creepy and often very scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one that maybe for budgetary reasons, but also I feel like just a general restraint. Um, I feel like it, it holds back on showing too much. And when I, what I've read about the Nightingale is that, uh, no such choices being made that yeah. it just shows everything. Yeah. Um, uh, man, there's a moment that I won't give away that I wish I could, that is so powerful. Um, but it's, it's the one moment where you expect, okay, something violent's about to happen and then it doesn't. And it's, in, that is so effective, but I can't really mm. talk about it. Uh, Aisling Franciosi plays a, an, uh, Irish, um, former prisoner, um, convict who was sent like many people to, Mm-hmm. Tasmania or Van Diemen's Land as a as a prisoner and now is essentially she has served her time but is essentially under the foot of the English soldier played by Sam Claflin hmm. uh, or the English sorry he's a he's a lieutenant I guess um, and he's in charge of the 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 uh, troops that are stationed where she lives um, she's depending on dependent on him to be able to go back home to Ireland and he uh, keeps her under his thumb and occasionally rapes her. Um, and then when, uh, and this isn't a big spoiler, this is the sort of the, just the inciting action. Um, when her husband um, reacts a little too strongly against this treatment, he kills him and has one of his soldiers kill their infant child. And then goes to town. I don't mean he goes to town. He literally right. leaves their encampment for the nearest town um, and leaves her for dead. And so she hires a um, uh, abor- an Aboriginal guide play- named Billy, played by Bakali Ganambar, who's also great, to help her track them down. Um, and from that point on, the movie becomes just a really really curious and interested movie about the ways that various people have been oppressed and what that does to them and what that does and doesn't justify. Uh, you know, there's, 
this is unlike Green Book. This isn't like the white person and the black person team up and right. learn positive lessons from one another. They do eventually become friends, but they don't they don't represent avatars of their entire race. Uh, right. They are people who have both been through awful things, and there is some sort of early on there is some sort of pull on uh, uh, or, or some sort of uh, um, attempt on Claire's part to be like. Well, yeah, they did this to your family, but they did this to me, and I've been raped, and that's like, uh, and and eventually they sort of uh, realize that um, things are terrible for both of them, and it's right. not really, um, not really use, you know, dick measuring, as it were, <laughs> not really worth it. Um, but uh, really, the movie is about them hopefully becoming better people um, yeah. despite everything that's been done to them and not giving in to the uh, violence that defines life in 1825 uh, Van Diemen's <laughs> Land. Um, yeah, it's uh, an incredibly well-made movie. It's never any less than compelling, but like the guy, the Sundance programmer who introduced it before he introduced Jennifer Kent said something like, this is not an easy sit. And at first I was like, don't say that right before you bring up the director. But then I watched the movie and I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I mean, I guess that was kind of a trigger warning. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I know I, I get more screenings as I get older. So maybe some people won't find it as uh, as rough to watch as I did. But it's really rough. Okay. okay. Um, also, I didn't mention both The Mountain and The Nightingale shot in the Academy 133 aspect ratio, which is... It's happening a lot more often. It has been, yeah, over the past... I feel like... I'm probably wrong, but I feel like Andrea Arnold doing, like, Fish Tank and then Wuthering Heights that way was, like, the first that I really, like, hmm. noticed that coming back. But now it's, like, yeah, all the time. Yeah. First Reformed. Um, ghost Clara's Story, ghost, right? A Ghost Story, yeah. Yeah. What do you think of that? Um, I am gonna say i'm all for it okay i mean i don't i i think technology the technology is such now that people can shoot movies in whatever aspect ratio they right want. i think like um unsane was in the iphone aspect ratio which is mm. like somewhere between 133 and 166 like right um and that's just what it is and i i uh so i think i like the freedom so i'm i'm all for people making movies in whatever aspect ratio they want. If it ever feels to me like you're just doing this because it's the, the in thing. Right. Um, but the thing is, I feel that way about a good number of movies that are in scope that I'm like, are you just doing this because that's more, it seems more movie ish. Like a lot of times yeah. I feel like movies are in scope that don't need to be, um, like, I don't know, mean or only dying girl. I feel like, um, mm. but, uh, I, I, I try not to judge. Uh, I, I try to sort of. It's like a movie being set in a certain era, a movie being black, in black and white. It's like, how much time am I gonna get gonna devote to right. objecting to this? It's what the movie is at this point. You know, right. I'll just try to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. <clears throat> oh, next up was movie. Now I'm, I know you've had this experience. You talked about this. I left this movie. I saw it at 8:30 in the morning the next morning after seeing the Nightingale. Uh, it's the polar opposite of the Nightingale in a lot of ways. And I left the movie going, oh, that was nice. That was all right. Mm. And then the more I thought about the movie, the more I love it. 
uh, and we talked about it in the preview. It's called. It's directed by Martha Stevens. It's called To the Stars. It's a black and white film that takes place in early 1960s small town Oklahoma about a a girl played by Kara Hayward, who is uh, the girl from uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, you never saw Moonrise. You saw Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, sorry, Moonrise Kingdom. Yes. yes, it sounded like you said Mariah's Kingdom, and I was like, uh, oh, "That's sorry. new to me." Moonrise okay. Kingdom. Yes. Okay. You know the girl yeah. Susie, or whatever I think is her name. Well, now she's uh, playing, you know, high school seniors or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, she's a sort of a nerdy outcast girl in this small town, and uh, a new girl played by Liana Liberato, whom I know when she was younger. She was in Trust, a movie that uh, David Schwimmer directed. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and she's from Kansas City. She's from the big city. Yeah. Um, uh, it really did make you think. I'm sure Kansas City was intentional because it made me think of the song from the musical Oklahoma, Everything's right. Up to Date in Kansas City. Um, <laughs> which is probably my personal favorite song from. I'm not a big Oklahoma fan, but I like that song. Um, anyway, so she's from Kansas City. And she's sort of like uh, um, Buffy. Buffy Summers moving to Sunnydale. Everyone wants to be her friend at first, and she chooses just like Buffy chose to be friends with Willow Rosenberg. She chooses the nerdy girl over the popular girl, like Cordelia Chase yeah. uh, in, in in Sunnydale. Um, and uh, um, this sort of chain of events sets off things that completely upend the social structure of the high school and eventually spread out to um, the entire town. Uh, but it's a movie that is okay. And it does have some, some tragic things befall some of the characters, but it's a movie that is so, so earnest. So without, right. Uh, you know, any sort of smirking, when you described it, it sounded potentially like overly precious. Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's really fantastic. Um, and Kara Hayward's parents are played by Shay Wiggum, who's mm-hmm. always great, and then Jordana Spiro. I don't know if you know her. Um, she's a, mostly known for TV shows. She was the star of that TBS comedy, My Boys, that uh, Jim Gaffigan was on. No, oh, yeah, no, um, I didn't see that. A really great show. She gives the performance of the movie. She's so great as 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 Kara Hayward's uh, mother, who's cares about her daughter, but also is so bitter about where she has ended up that mm-hmm. she is also a sort of obstacle to her daughter's uh, growth mm-hmm. as a as a human being. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I just think the movie is that's that's what stuck with me is maybe it was too earnest for me to really. Maybe I'm too jaded to initially let a movie that earnest sink in, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's why at first I was like, oh, that was okay. But then, like, by the next morning after I'd slept on it, I always like to... That's the one thing about festivals is sometimes I have to write reviews of a movie before I've had a chance to sleep on it. Yeah. I don't like to do that. I like to I like to put a night of sleep <clears throat> in between a movie and me writing a review. That's probably a good call, yes. So, that's all, that was To the Stars. Um... Next up, God, we got okay. We're getting there. We got a long way to go, though. Okay. Um, oh, this one's this one's gonna be big when it comes out. I think uh, it's Scott Z. Burns' movie, The Report. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, which is um, it's in the sort of traffic slash Syriana mold. Mm-hmm. 
Um, although I think it is better than either of those. I've never liked Syriana Traffic. I feel like I like less every time I revisit it, which has been a few years now. Um, I think it's 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 worth revisiting. Like the okay. the the flaws rem- remain, but it's one of those things. Like when you first see it, you're like. Oh my gosh! This when we yeah. first saw, it, I was like, yeah. "This is amazing." And then you get older, and you're like, eh, "It's kind of clunky in some ways, and yeah. kind of ham-fisted in others." And because of that, you start to be like, "Well, it's probably not as good as I remember." And then you see it again, okay. and you're like, "Okay, well, I know those are there." Yeah. And then you see it, and you're like, "Man, this is a beautifully acted okay. film, and mostly pretty well written." That's and kind that of kind the of same thing. trajectory I've had with Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, which I loved. Saw it. Yeah. Couldn't wait to see it in the theater again. Yeah. Second, third viewing, I was like, I think this movie's dumb. And then, yeah. like, rewatching it again, I'm like, I don't care that this movie's yeah. dumb. There's so much yeah. that's great about it. Whatever whatever I thought last time, <laughs> yeah. the, the, I, I will think the opposite um, now. So, like, the last time I saw it, I was like, oh, you know what? Man, this is a damn good movie. And then Jen was rewatching, uh, was rewatching it on her own the other day, and I came in and watched the rest of it with her. And I was like, man. This movie is not that good. And <laughs> and I guarantee the next time I watch it, we're like, oh, what was I talking about? It's my favorite movie of all time. Um, all right, so the report is in that mold. Uh, it's about the um, investigative report, the Senate investigative report, Senate Intelligence Committee's investigative report into the uh, Bush-era CIA enhanced interrogation program mm-hmm. um, which is a report that took six years to put together um, and it has never it, the full report which is like 4,000 pages or something yeah. has never seen the light of day I think there was like a uh, maybe, maybe it's like 7,000 pages there was a 500 page summary of the report <laughs> that was redacted like yeah. heavily redacted and that's all that's actually like seen the light um, I guess that's second if you didn't know I guess I kind of just gave away the end of the movie but I, you know it's all that's not the point of the movie right um, uh, Adam Driver plays uh, Daniel Jones who is uh, uh, a Senate I guess his official term is just Senate aide he works for Senator Dianne Feinstein Stein, who was when the Democrats controlled the House she was the head of the Intelligence Committee um, she's played by Annette Benning, who's terrific hmm. um, and so Adam Driver is our sort of protagonist over the course of the uh, the movie sort of takes place over the course of the six year investigation but then also flashes back to as he uncovers things we get flashes back to the CIA actually making these decisions and doing right. these things so you get like Maura Tierney and Tim Blake Nelson um, as as CIA agents um, uh, in, the, in the past and then you've got um, uh John Hamm, who shows up as the same character in multiple, he starts at the very beginning when he's um, like a um, chief of staff to Senator Tom Daschle, I think, and then by the end of the movie, he's um, Obama's Obama's chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the character's name, but he was one of Dennis McDonough. Is that one of Obama's? It chief sounds right to staff? me. Yeah, I think that's the character that he plays. Um, I'm leaving out some other great actors who show up here and there. Um, Jennifer Morrison uh, plays a plays a judge. Uh, oh yeah, Matthew Reese plays a reporter. Uh, Ted Levine plays John Brennan from the CIA. Michael C. Hall plays the CIA. Muckety muck. Uh, it's got a great a great cast. And I really f- I was really worried the movie was going to be just too dry. The movie is actually perfectly 
exceptionally dry. <laughs> but it ended up being something that I like about it is that it lets so little. It's the opposite of vice in that it lets so little of the sanctimoniousness of the anger, yeah. you know, come through. Occasionally, we do see Adam Driver lose his temper, and those moments play bigger because. Uh, because most of it is just him doing his job. You know, he's the guy dedicated to his job. Um, uh, but he occasionally loses anger. In fact, at one point, oh yeah, Corey Stoll is in the movie too. Nice. Um, uh, as a lawyer, uh, he's having a conversation with Corey Stoll about torture and about how all the findings, even CIA's own findings have said the torture doesn't actually work. But then he has this thing about, but people still think it does because every Thursday night they watch Jack Bauer say, I wish I could follow the rules, but I got to stab this guy. So I'll give her the plans for the whatever. Right. Um, uh, and it, so the movie takes its digs at 24. It also has a little bit of a dig at uh, zero dark 30, um, uh, or at least a, a, re- a reference to zero dark 30 that paints it in a negative light. Um, because zero dark 30 is a movie that, does imply that the torture is what led to the intelligence, which is what, not what Adam Driver, sorry, Daniel Jones's uh, investigation found that they got that from other, other means. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, uh, but the movie is not just, uh, a polemic. It is inspiring and sometimes galvanizing and infuriating, but it's such a great process movie. Um, that it's uh, it really took me by surprise. I was expecting it to be this sort of like histrionic, histrionic, but like awardsy type movie. Sure, it sure. is. It is awardsy, but it's so well made um, that uh, is it similar to say all the president's men? Because uh, that's a movie that I feel like is actually pretty dry. Yeah, I guess it is not unlike all the president's men or Spotlight, but it's more. Sure. I think maybe because. It has more of that. Um, Soderbergh's a producer too. It has more of that Syriana traffic type feel because in all the presidents men in spotlight, you're not actually seeing people being like. In this case, you're right. seeing people be waterboarded and oh, tortured. Okay. So it has more of a thriller type of. Okay. It has elements of thriller to it that would put it, I think, in a slightly different class. But it, uh, yeah, a, a number of critics. Um, that I saw talking about on Twitter did compare it to Spotlight. So okay. It definitely has that feel of an investigation being followed, but with more of a thriller type of tone. Okay. All right. Really good. Definitely one to look out for uh, whenever it comes to theaters or, I don't know, more likely some streaming services. Um, that's the way things are going nowadays, right? Oh, I didn't like that character. Um, <laughs> all right. Next up. Um... I, I can't wait for you to see this one. Uh, it's called The Death of Dick Long. It is from one of the directors of the Swiss Army Man. Okay. And it is a... It starts off as a dark comedy, and it is funny throughout, but it becomes increasingly tragic and less funny. Like, not unfunny, it becomes less a comedy as it goes on, even though, and I won't give away certain things... Um, the story is ridiculous and outrageous. Um, the I'll say this as a kind of an aside. The director, um, I guess, in the post show Q and A, which I didn't stay for because I had to, it was my tightest turnaround time of the festival. I had to get to another movie and I did make it just barely. Um, anyway, um, the director implored people not to give away the twist, and it got me thinking about this would have been a good top of show topic maybe. 
um, that I feel like people overuse the word twist. Yeah, because absolutely. A twist to me is I thought things were one way. Turns out they were another way the whole time. Yeah. Whereas this is a movie that you know it's keeping something from you, and then it has a reveal. They're both perfectly valid forms of storytelling. Absolutely. But a reveal and a twist are two different things. Yeah. Anyway, so this one's a reveal. Um, Yeah, a reveal answers a question. A twist suggests, like, a a twist is like... question everything you've Exactly, yes, yes. Uh, Yeah. So... The death of Dick Long is, it takes place in a uh, small town in Alabama, when, which these three just kind of, uh, um, I don't know, kind of loserish guys um, hang out every night at band practice. They're terrible. It's basically just an excuse for them to fuck around and drink beer with each other. Right. Um, but they hang out at the house of the one who's, I guess, the most accomplished because he has a wife and a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so one night after band practice, his wife and daughter go up to bed they're down in the uh garage slash basement type of thing and the uh one of the members of the band played by do you know the comedian uh andre highland no um, okay uh he says y'all want to get weird <laughs> um and then they get fucked up and they fuck just like dumb dudes do they start fucking around with fireworks and oh uh, boy and then we cut, we don't, this is the thing that is real. We don't know what happened, but then we cut to hours later and their, their third friend played by the director himself, by the way, is bleeding to death in their back seat, And they take him to an emergency room and drop him off and speed away. And then he dies in the mm-hmm. emergency room. That's the death of Dick long. And then the movie is basically about these two complete morons trying to cover up their involvement in their friend's death. Yeah. And part of the joke is that the cops, um, uh, one of whom is played by uh, Sarah Baker. Do you know? Um, she was in that famous, uh, one of the, the more well-known uh, episodes of Louie, where um, she was the uh, waitress at the comedy club um, that was, she had the whole thing about um, how, how, uh, because she was overweight and she has the whole thing about how overweight, oh, yes. okay, overweight guys it. are meaner to her. Than, <clears throat> okay, anyway. yeah. So she's one of the cops. So part of the joke is the cops aren't that much smarter than these two guys are. Okay. So part of the, the movie is like, uh, like, you know, two hours long. There are so many points when everyone is just one simple question away from figuring out everything that's going on because <laughs> they're doing such a bad job of covering it up. Um, uh, and... Um, so the a lot of the jokes come from their just stupidity. There's a great there's a great when they're cleaning the blood out of the back back seat. They um, uh, obviously are talking about Pulp Fiction when they clean the blood out of the back seat. And like we need that guy, the Wolf. And like who played him? Anthony Kiedis. <laughs> no, that's the guy from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, uh, so there's yeah, uh, but then as it as it goes on, and you sort of as you realize how Dick died, which is both uh, very ridiculous and also tragic, uh, the movie becomes sadder and sadder, and it's sort of portrait of a, you know there's something we've been saying. If I I don't even know when we could go back to save the tiger or even before, mm-hmm. but the idea of the straight white man being at the top of the pyramid and things changing underneath him 
socially has put the straight white man in cinema in a free fall for mm-hmm. decades at this point. Oh yeah. And this is a movie about someone who is at the bottom of that top. <laughs> yeah. These are the dumbest guys. And as the world is changing, they have nothing because mm-hmm. they have nothing to fall back on. Yeah. Um, and the world is changing without them. And it, they are masculinity without a purpose, without a cause. <laughs> yeah. And the movie becomes sadder and sadder as it goes on, mm-hmm. but still dumbly fun. I have a, it sounds good, but at the same time, as you know, I have a very hard time watching movies about oafs <laughs> about where it's just everyone. Like I have a hard time with bottle rocket because uh-huh. you're like, Hey, you want to watch a bunch of morons just screw everything up, but yeah. with total confidence. Yeah. Like I do not want to see that. And, uh, it's, and this, like, I think this would be hilarious, but I also feel like I would be so frustrated all the time, yeah. uh, that I might not enjoy it. Uh, but the fact that it takes kind of a, almost a, a darker turn yeah. or a more melancholy turn, like might make it a little bit more acceptable for me. Um, but the one running joke that I haven't mentioned, uh, that Daniel Shana, the, uh, director even mentioned in his introduction. Cause he said, he was like, I'm so grateful to all the, uh, what he called butt rock bands that let me use their music. There's a running joke of these guys having terrible taste in music and it's all, so the opening scene is them practicing. It's been a while by stained. You know that? Oh yeah. Uh, oh wow. <laughs> and then like, uh, so there's like Nickelback shows up. There's one great moment when like, Andre Highland's character goes to goes to work to try and act like everything's okay, but then the other guy, uh, Matthew Abbott, Abbott Jr., is the actor, um, suddenly needs his help again with cleaning up the blood out of the car, and he's like, I can't leave work, and he's like, tell him it's an emergency. He's like, I can't tell him it's an emergency. That's what I told him last week when we had to see Papa Roach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a very funny movie. All right, um... And then, yes, the horror midnight movie uh, that I barely made it to on time. I'm glad I did, although apparently I'm in the minority. And I'll say, okay, another aside. Having been, okay, I've been to, this is my fourth Sundance last September with my first Toronto. I think as an experience, I I like Sundance. Sundance feels, uh, it's more fun running around from movie to to movie. Um, There are certain things like, they at Toronto they don't let you into the theater early enough that's mm. like you wait in line forever and then I go in I get my seat and it's like alright fuck now I gotta go use the bathroom and get like some right. drink and I miss the beginning of the movie because they don't they, oh they, yeah anyway that's annoying at Toronto Sundance they let you in a half hour before you get to um, but one thing I will say is that the Toronto has over Sundance is the Midnight Madness program not that they're programming better movies I've seen good movies Midnight at both places, but the midnight program at Toronto feels like its own separate festival yeah. outside of the rest of the festival that it has its own, its own following its own like traditions, its own crowd. It's midnight movies at Toronto. Are such a blast. Uh, at Sundance, they show good movies, but it does feel there. Uh, the midnight movies, the, the one I went to this year, the one I went to last year, were at the library screening room, which is like my least favorite screening room. You got to walk up three flights of steps. Sightlines are terrible. The seats aren't comfortable. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't feel as exciting as being right. at the the. Uh, it feels like an afterthought. Uh, yeah, yeah. As opposed to the the Ryerson Theater at Toronto, which is like people are cranked up to see these movies. Um, anyway, that was just a little aside because someone had asked me. Um, 
someone whose first Sundance it was who had been to Toronto as well asked me which one I preferred. Hmm. And I told him Sundance, but I wish I had pointed out Toronto does have an edge on the midnight movies. Anyway, so that's beside the point. The point is that uh, the midnight movie that I saw this year was um, directed by Babak Anvari, who made Under the Shadow, which is the Iranian horror movie that I saw um, at Sundance my first year in 2016. This one is... Not an Iranian movie. It's a an American movie. Uh, it's called Wounds, and it has a great cast. Um, Army Hammer stars as a New Orleans bartender. Uh, his living girlfriend is played by um, Dakota Johnson. He has a regular uh, client played by Zazie Beetz, um, Domino from Deadpool Two. Got it. Um, and um, there's probably some other things that I'm missing that come and go. Um, and so uh, the movie, the, the opening scene on, on, on its own of this movie is a long opening scene that could be almost a one I play in itself, um, which ends in it's, it's at the bar. It ends in a really brutal bar fight breaks out. Um, dude gets his whole cheek slashed open by a broken bottle. Yes. Another guy gets his arm bent yes. in a way his arm arms aren't supposed to go. Uh, and then there's these, quote unquote college kids who are probably actually high school kids with fake IDs who, as soon as they realize the cops are coming, they take off. Mm-hmm. One of them leaves their phone behind army hammer picks up the phone and being kind of the dick that he is, he figures out the passcode and starts, and the, but then the people the, the kids start fucking with him or is it the kids or is it some sort of demon that has come over the phone line? Suddenly his world is infected with, uh, uh, with new and terrifying things. Um, and, uh, yeah, some people that I, that saw it at Sundance really didn't like it. I really did like it. Um, and I, uh, but I think maybe some of the reason that some people are object- objecting to it is that almost no character in the movie is a good person. Okay. <laughs> They're mostly, uh, I think well, that's not uncommon for horror movies. Yeah. Um, but I think Zazie B's character is the one who, while also not a very good person, is the one who actually shows some growth over the movie. Whereas most of the movie, I feel like the hauntings or the infestations of the poltergeist mm-hmm. or whatever are metaphors for the way that these people turn on each other rather than addressing their own shit. Yeah. Um, uh, and so it is, it can be kind of unpleasant to see, you know, a movie that's 90 something minutes of, shitty people being shitty to each other. Yeah. But I found, uh, some of the scares incredibly scary, which is another thing that I was talking to our friend Angie. She was like, I guess it was creepy. I didn't really find it scary, but that's a, it's a relative thing. Right. And so I'll tell you something. One of the scariest moments in any movie I've ever seen before for me is in Mulholland drive mm-hmm. when Robert Blake, Robert Blake came up again. Did we talk about him? Wait, hang on. Do you mean... I mean Lost Highway. Lost Highway. Lost Highway. Uh, did we talk about Robert Blake on this one or on the movie journal? I think it was a movie journal. I think movie journal. Seems like a long time ago. Anyway. Um, yes, sorry. Lost Highway when Robert Blake comes up to Bill Pullman is like, I'm in your house and he hands him the phone. Yeah. And he's standing there and he's in the house. So the idea, something's in the house, it's not supposed to be something's there while you're there or while you're not there. Yeah. That stuff really gets to me. And so there are, there's a recurring thing of like, while he's at work, Dakota Johnson is texting, something's here with me, sending her him pictures of weird things that seem to be like shapes of a human in the house. But then he gets home and she has no memory of having sent. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's creepy. That's yeah. really creepy. Yeah. So that stuff, that, uh, that stuff got to me. There's some, 
Um, there's also some cheap jump scares, which I think is something that I feel like people who think they're okay. <laughs> I'm going to quote one of your favorite movie reviews. Okay. Which is Robert e- Roger Ebert's review of Congo. Okay. Because he liked it. Right. And he no, said, hang on. No. That's what where you that? are. The indigenous piece. Oh, okay. Got it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I'm, I, I can't remember the exact phrasing that he used, but Roger Ebert said something about, False sophisticates will hate it. Real sophisticates will love it. And I feel like there's something about people who are false horror sophisticates who are like, oh, jump scares. But yeah. real sophisticates know that's part of the fabric. And as long as they're done right, yeah. they add to the tension in the atmosphere. Yeah. There's like there's a moment in alien that has one of the best jump scares yeah. you'll ever see. And it's totally earned. It's like, it, it's not unlike when people are like, Oh, CG practical effects are way better. And it's just like, I see where you're coming from. Huh? And I, and part of me might agree with you, but only in certain circumstances. In other cases, <laughs> CG is astonishing, uh, when it is used well, just like jump scares. Like sure, yeah. if you rely on them, because they're what's expected, then yeah, of course they're going to get boring and that sort of thing. But if you do it well, Oh yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I will give a, uh, uh, I don't know if this is rises to the level of a trigger warning, but a warning. If you have a thing, cause I was telling my wife who doesn't like horror movies to begin with, that I was like, you won't want to watch this one in particular because my wife is specifically, especially icked out by cockroaches. And this movie mm. has so many cockroaches in it, <laughs> which is also like very new Orleans. Sorry. I hate yeah. to say it, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's if, a filthy place. Uh, yeah. If you have a thing, uh, with cockroaches, maybe, uh, avoid. I, I don't really have that thing. And even sitting in the movie theater, I kept sort of like feeling like my skin, like there was yeah. on my skin. Um, cause there's just so many cockroaches. Yeah. In the movie. Um, some practical, some CG. Okay. Anyway, and the practical ones are better. all right oh god five more to go five oh that's not bad okay yeah um i'm gonna lose my voice over here uh next up is tell you what you tell me what the movie is and i i'll put out what i think it was like okay why don't you tell me about extremely wicked shockingly vile and evil i said it wrong again extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile well it's a frustrating title that really should have been retitled um but uh so I think. Well, picture if you will, because it comes from a, di- a line of dialogue in the movie. Picture John Malkovich saying it. All right, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Um, yeah. So this movie, I mean, I think it was. Uh, it's. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> Zac Efron is like super charming, uh-huh. and that's that's how they described Ted Bundy, and so in a way, it makes sense uh-huh. that he uh, that he would play up that that part of himself, <laughs> um, but. Aside from a, a really, a really solid performance, because Zac Efron is showing himself to be just a very competent actor as he gets older. Um, aside from that, the film is fine, not particularly interesting. Okay, um, nah, it's not too far off. From okay. how I, the movie. I just had a feeling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, I, th- I do think Zac Efron. He plays Ted Bundy. He's. Uh, I do think he's he's good, but I do think the. I also think the movie is. Uh, is just too too uh, superficial. Um, mm. On the one hand, I like there are things I appreciate about it in that it's a movie about Ted Bundy that almost doesn't ever show him actually murdering anyone. Yeah. Um, although I've I've read some reviews that I'm looking at a little 
uh, askance who claim that that's irresponsible because it almost plays as a mystery as to whether or not because he's always insisting on his own innocence right. and we never see him do it so is the movie I guess some people's argument like a, a couple of reviews that I read argued that if you didn't know anything about Ted Bundy you would think this is a movie about whether or not he did these things but like, that's that's the whole point in my again I haven't seen the film but just the idea that like What's the thing that people all, almost always say about serial killers? Like, I can't imagine right. it. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, and that's because one of the things the movie promises but doesn't really um, deliver on is being split between Ted Bundy and then uh, Lily Collins' character, Liz, who was his fiance, mm-hmm. And she, for, even after his multiple arrests and trials, has so much difficulty... Yeah. Admitting to herself that he's guilty. Exactly. The, People that only see one side of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good conceit. I just wish yeah. it were explored a little deeper because I think the problem is that Liz never really becomes a character. Right. Unfortunately. Um, um, there's, there's only, there's one moment in later in the movie in which she's flashing back to sort of their first night in bed together and, suddenly interpreting his actions as a lover, as the actions of a killer and seeing things a different way, but it's too little too late by then. Yeah. Um, I will say the one, uh, again, I don't really like the movie, but to praise it again, praise Joe Berlinger's restraint. The one time we do see just a little bit of, um, an actual murder being committed is impeccably timed and it's, for the most power possible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I won't give that away cause that's very close to the end of the movie when we see that. Okay. Um, but yeah, overall I think too superficial. Um, Haley Joe Osmond's good in it, which I told him by oh, the way, how's he doing? I saw him at the Burbank airport. He was apparently on my flight, which I didn't know, uh, home from, uh, mm-hmm. um, from Sundance. And then like we were both walking to like the, Pass the bags come to where the yeah. looked over and I was like, Hey, good job at actually wicked. <laughs> and, and he was like, Oh, you saw it at the fest. And he was like carrying his skis. He had like <laughs> gone skiing while he was at Sundance. Uh, and he was like, thanks man. And then he just sort of walked off into the night. Yeah. Uh, Haley Joel Osment style. <laughs> Seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I think he is based on like interviews and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh yeah, and then fi- I will say the final thing about Extremely Wicked is that now if, I know you don't read as many of the metal blogs that I read. You might read some mm-hmm. heavy metal blogs, but probably not as many as I read. If you if you read metal blogs, you know you've known for the months. ones I read have more of a right leaning bent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's actually probably. Oh really? <laughs> I specifically read metal blogs with a left leaning bent because so much of the metal community is conservative really yeah very much um which is why this is the thing that i can't i need to learn to resist anytime like metal injection or metal sucks are the two that i read which are both pretty uh you know politically more in line with me anytime anything even political comes up even if it's not a commentary on their part even they're saying like oh randy blythe from limb of god had this to say about donald trump um i will 
I can't resist scrolling down to the comments because oh. because so many metalheads are are there's so many there's such a Trump contingency in the metalhead community that they constantly are polluting up the comments on these vlogs. I am genuinely surprised. I, and not that I know much about metal, but I just what I associate with it doesn't fit with like. And I say this as a conservative, like I just don't see a lot of overlap there. Yeah, and I think it's more among the. I feel like most, a lot of metal musicians are not conservatives, right? But it seems like it has a lot of. Obviously, there's your Dave Mustaine from from Megadeth, who's sure. a, who's a conservative, um, but also like a whack job. So I don't think you should hold him up as a. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it 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 seems weird, but yeah, there's a strong pro-Trump contingency in the metal scene. Oh, anyway, I thought, I thought I was making a funny joke. Yeah. So anyway, um, metalheads have known for months that Extremely Wicked is not just the Zac Efron plays Ted Bundy movie. It's the acting debut of Metallica's James Hetfield. Really? And I want to say, if you're like me and you had your hopes up, don't get your hopes up. He's barely in it. Oh, okay. But, um, yeah, the, so the first time Ted Bunny was ever actually arrested, uh, was by the, um, Utah <coughs> highway patrol. And so James Hetfield plays a highway patrolman. Um, he looks the part and sure. he looks inti- like in the interrogation room, he looks intimidating when he like, they've got him in an interrogation room and then they find like a duffel bag of like, tools you would use to tie up and kill someone. Hmm. And so like James, or James Hetfield like walks into the interrogation room and menacingly tosses down the duffel bag on that table. It's a, he's, he's does, he does his job very well, but he is barely in it. You know, I'm sure he does a fine job, but I did have the thought like if he's not going to be in it that much and he's not going to do anything particularly interesting with it, but, That's just a part being taken from a character actor. But do you know the connection here? I don't think I do. Is that the director, Joe Berlinger, is one of the directors uh, of, of, of Some Kind of Monster, of some right? Kind of monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that yes, that I knew. But at the yeah. same time, like, James Hetfield's gonna, Hetfield's going to be fine. Yeah. All right? <laughs> There's like a middle-aged actor somewhere who's like, who only plays unnamed bartenders and patrolmen. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I could have used that money, but no, let's throw it to the, the musician on a, you know, on a lark. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. All right. Uh, next. Okay. So that was the second, uh, if you're keeping track, the second of the three movies that I disliked the big okay. ones coming in a little bit. Oh boy. After this one. Um, but no, the next movie I really liked, even though I could tell that a number of the, Audience members did not. Um, it's called Photograph. It's directed by Ritesh Bashra, who made The Lunchbox, which is an absolutely oh, okay. lovely movie. Did you ever see that? No, but I, I heard wonderful things about it. So lovely. And this is um, uh, similarly a Mumbai set romance, um, but it's a, it's a romance about two of the most cautious people imaginable kind of maybe falling for each other. And so the movie is so reserved. I love so stuff cautious. like that. I loved it, but I could tell not only from the body language of people around me, but I could actually overhear once the movie was out, people talking about thinking it was too slow, hmm. um, which is a bummer because I, I really liked it. It's called, uh, so it's called photograph. And basically there's a, um, uh, it's kind of a, uh, class cross class romance. Sure. So you've got this, uh, young woman who's not rich, but is wealthy enough. Uh, her family has like a, 
uh, a maid and stuff like that. She's maybe middle class to upper middle class uh, Mumbai. And she's walking around, uh, walking from a, an accounting class she's taking or something like that. And she walks past the, um, is it called the Gate of India or the Gate of Mumbai? The Anyway, it's a big monument. Yeah, I don't Mumbai. remember. Um, and uh, a guy mistaking her for a tourist or, or, or a traveler offers to take her picture. This is something he, this is what he does for a living. Mm-hmm. He goes there every day, takes like Polaroid pictures of people and sells them uh, mm-hmm. to them as a keepsake of their, anyway, uh, their trip to the, to Mumbai. Um, but uh, so that happens. And then uh, this guy's grandmother, his parents have passed away. This guy's grandmother is on him to get married because he's too old to not be married uh, anymore. And, um, he basically lies and says, I'm actually seeing someone and shows her the, sends her the picture. And the grandma is like, I'm coming to Mumbai. I got to meet, <laughs> I got to meet your special lady. So it's not reserved at all, David. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, so, uh, the guy has to like track down the woman and then convince her to pretend. Um, and they kind of, you know, they go along with it. And I don't want to get uh, much further in than that, but it's a, a movie of, m- uh, often long, quiet conversations. Yeah. Um, that is about class without ever being specifically about class. There's a great part where she runs into her teacher on the street and he's an asshole to her. And he, like the main, the photographer guy hesitates to say anything because and the movie doesn't say because he's of a lower class. Right. But it's, you can tell like he, and then he beats himself up for not, not literally beats himself up, yeah. but uh, he he's beats himself up for not stepping in. But you can, the movie heavily implies that he didn't because he felt like it wasn't his right. place to say something like, uh, um, but most of the movies, long conversations, there's a lot of great, cause he lives, um, he saves up his money and sends it home to pay off his parents' debts. So he actually lives in a, like a one bedroom apartment with like five other guys. Um, and they have hilarious conversations together. And when his grandma comes, she stays with them. So it's like this old lady, this sort of like saucy old grandma lady and these like five middle-aged guys, uh, hanging around and being the best of friends. There's yeah, some very gentle comic relief. It's a very, it's a very lovely movie. Um, I, I really, I really liked it. So that's Photograph. The movie I hated. Oh, boy. I love negativity from you, David. But. Uh, Not at me, though. It, do you know, it's, uh, well, it's like that old saying, I'm not actually angry. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I saw the film Relive, which was something I was really excited to see because it's directed by Jacob Estes, who made Mean Creek, a movie you and I both love. I do, yeah. And I don't understand how this movie is from the same guy. Hmm. This relive would have been a bad early two thousands direct to DVD movie. Ugh. It's a high concept, like sort of, um, uh, time travel action thriller in okay. which, uh, it's very similar to frequency in a lot of ways, except it's, uh, more violent and they say fuck a lot. It's an okay. R rated frequency. Um, David Oyelowo plays, uh, an LA detective mm-hmm. who was very close with his, um, niece played by storm Reed, uh, who's the girl from a wrinkle in time. Oh, okay. <clears throat> um, his brother, her father is Brian Tyree Henry, who's sort of 
reformed criminal, but still doesn't quite have his shit together and maybe isn't as reformed as we think he yeah. is. And Man, that guy's in everything these uh, days. Yeah. Um, and so his not being as reformed as we think he is ends up getting his entire family, including Storm Reed, murdered by fellow, by rival drug dealers. Hmm. Um, but then, shortly after that happens, David Yolo gets a phone call from his niece, and she's talking to him from two weeks in the past. And so now, over the phone, he has to try to solve, get clues from her to solve who murdered the her family so that he can save her before it happens and change the present. Yeah. It's uh, very frequency. <laughs> yeah. And also very corny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you've got, you know, you've got this great cast. I've already named three great people. Yeah. You also got, uh, David Yellow's partner is Michael T. Williamson mm. and their captain is Alfred Molina, uh, who is just a thankless role. Just, yeah. he's just the, the, just a total. He's just the you the know standard. hand over your badge and gun captain oh, boy. type, uh, and often the exposition machine too. Unfortunately, um, and it's just the movie's just so so corny. Yeah, what the hell is it? I mean, aside from the cast, I guess like what the hell was it doing there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I I just couldn't. I, I don't want to. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, that is very disappointing. Yes. Yeah, I just don't know why he felt he... I don't know why he wanted to make that movie. I mean, like, it's it almost feels like a director-for-hire situation, except yeah. Yeah. why would you go with him? <laughs> like, that's yeah. an, like, oh, you know who's the perfect guy for... Steve, I got the perfect guy for this Relive movie. Do you see that Mean Creek film from 15 years ago? That guy will be the one to bring this stupid time travel bullshit to life. Yeah. Uh, all right, and then... I, I seem to be establishing sort of a tradition at Sundance of like see some good movies and like halfway through my time at the festival I'm like oh god maybe I've seen everything that I maybe I've seen everything I'm gonna like so mm-hmm. far and then always I see something my like last year was my last movie Madeline's Madeline the year before my last movie was Call Me by Your Name oh wow and then the first year my second to last movie was Certain Women so I keep seeing among my favorite movies of the festival right before I leave. Yeah. So here we're at my final day, final two movies that I saw, which ended up being my two favorite movies at the festival. Okay. And the first one, oh man, this one is going to be, I think is if it's, if it's marketed right, this movie is going to be a huge hit because it is such an unrelenting crowd pleaser, but without being condescending or cynical or cheap, it is the new movie from Grinder Chata who made Bend It Like Beckham. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even better than Ben Light Peckham. It's called Blinded by the Light. It is based on the true story um, of a now a very well-known uh, British journalist, but at the time, a 16-year-old uh, Pakistani-British uh, teenager living in a small English town in 1987 who is obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. That's right. This sounded terrible to me it's when you described so it. It's so great. Okay. It's so great. Um, and one thing that I hadn't considered, because I was, in 1987, I turned five years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess by 1987, because this is after, like, Born in the USA, after, like, Ronald Reagan was using Born in the USA in his thing. Like, mm-hmm. for a 16-year-old, it's not cool to like Bruce Springsteen anymore. I hadn't right. really thought about that. That his, um, 
his friend uh, is into the Pet Shop Boys. I mentioned earlier the <laughs> Pet Shop Boys become, would come up again. The movie opens, this movie about Bruce Springsteen opens with a Pet Shop Boys song. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and so when he discovers Bruce Springsteen, he's like even more of an outcast. He's already this nerdy kid and he has really restrictive uh, traditional Pakistani parents who won't let him do anything. <laughs> um, uh, and now he is walking around school with a jean jacket and a bandana, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, but basically the movie is full, like, it's full of Bruce Springsteen songs and Bruce Springsteen lyrics, which, you know, I guess maybe if you're not a Springsteen fan, it won't, connect with you as much but I honestly think the point of the movie is not Bruce Springsteen it's the, the point of the movie is that being a teenager is the time in your life when the movie that means some the music that means something to you no music is ever going to mean that much to you ever again yeah you know you will no, you will eventually lose the ability to interpret every lyric to every song as being meaningful to you you know right. as being something that's about about you um, and this movie takes you back to that feeling the way that it the way that because it actually the first time he listens I think the first song he listens to is uh, Dancing in the Dark and so you actually see the lyrics on screen um, uh, it, you know when I look in the mirror I want to change my hair my clothes my face it's so like perfect like how, how he's feeling at that at that moment and the movie uh, I you know look I'm an easy cry at movies but I could not keep it together during this movie. It was like a nonstop, just tears of joy um, uh, for for the, for this for this movie. Um, uh, it was the only movie that I stayed for the full Q and A for because I loved it so much. <coughs> which was with the star, I forget his name, Greta Chata, and then the guy, the real life guy that this is based on, mm. who's uh, has now um, been to so many Bruce Springsteen concerts that Bruce Springsteen knows who he is. Oh wow! I'll also he knew who he was before, but also he wrote a book. The book movie's right. based on his memoir. So, um, they wanted, the, so I, I, I mentioned the Q and a because they told, you know, I say I stood for the whole Q and a, I did what you do. I stayed up until the audience questions. Right. I stayed for the interesting part and not the annoying part. So, uh, they told a story about, they wanted to make this movie out of his memoir. They wanted Bruce Springsteen's permission. So they went to see him at, I can't remember some, some show that, where he was, uh, um, oh no it was the uh, premiere of something anyway he was at a thing where there was like a red carpet and they got themselves onto the red carpet and Bruce Springsteen recognized the journalist immediately and was like oh I read your book it, you know you uh, you know I loved it and they were like speechless and then they talked nah. about the movie so they, he finally he basically just like gave them carte blanche <coughs> and then um, he saw the movie apparently just a few weeks before he saw the movie in New York just to sort of sign off on it and uh, Grinder Chowder was saying she um, was positioned herself in the theater so that she could see how he was reacting mm-hmm. to things. And uh, the two parts he laughed at were, were this is going back to the kids' friends not being into Bruce Springsteen. When he puts up, pulls out a Bruce Springsteen poster, his friend goes, "Is that Billy Joel?" And apparently, <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, that was very funny. And then there's a part where because uh, the kid writes lyrics for his friend's band, and he starts quoting. Um, uh, born to run to him and he's like did you write that I told you your lyrics were shit and apparently Bruce Springsteen thought that was very funny too uh, but man yeah I can't recommend this movie highly enough I think it's it could be like a Bennett like Beckham type of yeah. hit uh, or bigger 
And I mean, granted, it's not Bohemian Rhapsody in so far as like it's not a it's not about Bruce Springsteen, but it does tap into something something notably American. Um, and I yeah. think I think it could, yeah, it could catch on if it's like you said if it's marketed correctly. Yeah, there's a because um, you've won me over uh-huh. by talking about like when you're a teenager. Regardless, even if you're incredibly popular, not that I was, but I've talked to people that that were just like, even when you're popular, there's still this part of you that's just like, I don't think anybody understands me Uh and uh, I don't think they would want to like there. There's such insecurity there combined with a vulnerability, which is why, as you mentioned, Music, and I also think movies are really any kind of art, uh, but everybody listens to music. Um, <clears throat> when you find a, a music that like hits you the right way, suddenly it's the only thing that understands yeah, you, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, and as you get older, you get out of that emotional phase, at least I'm told we do, um, where you feel like you're very alone. And so you're, you're able, you're better able to relate to other people and the, and music can still be important to you but it kind of you it has a place but when yeah when you're a teenager like the artist it's only coming at you like it's only coming towards you uh it's not a thing it's a thing you can respond to but uh unlike everybody else it can't really disappoint you because it doesn't actually change um so (laughs) do you know what i mean yeah it can't Um, respond incorrectly to you and that's why yeah i mean when you you said yes bruce springsteen is so distinctly american but i mean part of the conceit of the movie that's so moving is that yeah. a 16 year old British Pakistani boy yeah. um, it, it finds just as much to relate yeah. to as the, as the New Jersey burnouts or whatever that he's writing yeah. and singing about. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's something I do every once in a while. I try to look at movies that, cause you know, everybody that I know there's a hot take, but David, the country is more divided than ever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I do tend to look for movies that I think could actually like connect people, you know, not that they connect to each other, but like a movie that everybody can agree on works really well. And I feel like this is the kind of thing that could get everybody excited. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty rare. Yeah. Hell or high water was one of them. Yeah. Um, there's a part, uh, I'll tell you, uh, my, I okay. spoil it for people. I know you don't care about spoilers, but some people do. Yeah. Um, all right. Final movie. Uh, couldn't be more different in many ways from Blind Violet, except it also takes place in England in the 1980s. It's called The Souvenir, started mm-hmm. by Joanna Hogg, and it stars uh, Honor Swinton Byrne, I think, uh, but she is Tilda Swinton's daughter. Oh, okay. Tilda Swinton plays her mother in the movie, but it's about a young woman in film school in, 1980, in the 1980s who uh, is comes from a very wealthy and privileged, but also very, um, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, sheltered environment. Okay. Who starts hanging out with this art crowd and then ends up falling in love with a guy, um, uh, played by, is it Tom Burke? Or Tom, Tom Burke. Tom Burke. Yes. Um, <clears throat> who was in the state of play miniseries. Oh, okay. You know, 15 years ago. Whatever it was. Oh yeah. All right. <clears throat> um, so there's like a big age difference here. Um, between the characters. Uh, I guess so. I think he's, I mean, he was younger in state of play, but yeah, right. I, I don't think he's supposed to be that much older. Okay. Um, but he is, he works for the government. He's very sophisticated. 
he's very cultured. He has great opinions and conversations, and he is also a heroin addict. So, um, which is something she doesn't even realize until like halfway through the movie because she's so sheltered and he's so good at keeping her, keeping it from her. So it's a movie about someone being in love with a heroin addict. <clears throat> Stylistically, it doesn't have any of what you expect from heroin addiction drama. Right. It's not gritty, gritty, yeah, yeah. handheld. It's very, uh, or I should say it's mostly not handheld. We'll get to that in a second. It's very reserved. Um, I think sort of adopting the, the way we see Tilda Swinton's character, the way we, what we understand about the lead, uh, her name is Julie, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, from what we understand about Julie's upbringing, this, coldness this reservedness this chill is uh is how she lives life um and she doesn't have much perspective but there are occasional occasional moments where suddenly the movie does have a different texture to it and does have a handheld camera and does get a little bit closer and they tend to only last for a brief few seconds and mm-hmm. i i have a hypothesis of what they are is that those are those are moments that maybe didn't actually happen that way but are the way that that Julie will come to remember the moment hmm. that's my hypothesis I don't know if that's true but um, all the while I, but, uh, but I think they they get into it the fact that they become more frequent as the movie goes on I think gets to what the movie is is getting at which is the idea of the importance of experience and perspective because the other sort of through line is her prepping her thesis film, which she wants to make about, um, uh, shipbuilders in Sunderland. I think I can't remember. Um, and is being reminded because she feels, she feels politically motivated to tell a story about these working class people, but is, repeatedly reminded by more than one person or just thing in her life that she doesn't know anything about them. Yeah. You know, it's like Barton Fink. Uh, yeah, exactly. But she's, but she's learning in a way that Barton Fink doesn't. <clears throat> he uh, doesn't listen. He, yeah, he doesn't listen. She listens. Um, and that's why these things become more, uh, apparent. She becomes more comfortable uh, as her own person. Um, uh, but she's, she's unable to sort of reconcile her, personal artistic impulses with her political ones. Um, uh, and that, which is a story that seems like it would have very little to do with, uh, what's the character? Uh, Andy, I think is his name. Um, the Tom Burke character. Tom Burke's character. I think it's Andy. Uh, Anthony, Anthony, that's it. Um, little, seemed to have, have little to do with his heroin addiction. Uh, but this, this tale of, Experience and perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know. There's a uh, a souvenir or something that you're left with, you know? right? Um, uh, uh, and I don't, I don't know to exactly to what the title refers, but we might have to wait until the sequel comes out, which is currently in production. There is a the souvenir part two coming out with Robert Pattinson. Uh, really? Um, <laughs> yes. That's uh, strange. Yes. So it is cur- apparently currently in production. Is there a post credit sequence? <laughs> <laughs> I think I didn't catch my plan. I couldn't oh, stay. Okay. Um, what? What? Uh, I see that Richard Aowadi is yeah. in the film. Who is he? He is an older part of the film crowd. She hangs out with. Who? Okay. He's a. Uh, 
graduate of the okay. um, of the uh, of the same film school that she currently goes to. Okay, and he she's like all about I'm going to learn what I, all these things I need to learn, learn at film school. And his whole perspective is film school is just a place to get cheap access to equipment and a crew. You need to listen to any of these people. Yeah. <laughs> and like completely upends her sort of mm. thinking about film school. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not a very big part, but it's a, it ends okay. up being a very important uh, okay. part. Um, you remember on the movie journal, I talked about the discussion of Leo Tolstoy's definition of art. Yes. That comes from uh, the Richard Ayoid uh, character. Anyway, um, so I, I find that movie to be incredibly, incredibly powerful, incredibly beguiling because it's because it has that reserve. It takes some time to get into, but the movie sort of in a way, very subtly in a way I couldn't even really elucidate is mirroring her falling in love with him in that, uh, you get drawn closer and closer to the movie as it goes on. Um, even though it seems to be often unknowable because it's at a at a at a at a distance at a remove, so uh, that was the last movie that I saw. Do you have any questions about Sundance about the Sundance experience? Uh, no, at the moment I've just gotten fascinated at the concept of the souvenir part two. Uh, it's so strange to me. Like when you think of the movies that have sequels. Uh-huh. This type of movie doesn't seem like it, but yeah. uh, but that actually makes it all the more intriguing. Um, okay, so your least favorite movie of the relive, relive. It's unfortunate, and your your favorite film of the festival, Blinded by the Light. Blinded by the Light. But okay, the souvenir is a close second to Blinded okay. by the Light. I also uh, will give props to, uh, in no particular order, Wounds, The Death of Dick Long, um, The Mountain, and We Are Little Zombies. Those are okay. All. Very good movies. I would say overall a do you good know what the, do you know what the distribution situation is with with these? It sounds oh. like most of them will will yeah, be. Yeah, I, I know. We know um, a number of them have been picked up. Oh yeah, here's what I'll talk about: Native Son, right? Uh, produced by A24, but picked up by HBO. So it's going to be. Okay. I don't know if they're going to do a theatrical release or if it's like the tale last year where it's just going to be a TV movie. But so. Less than six hours after the news that it was being picked up by HBO, I saw the movie, and it had an HBO Films logo on it. And I just, given what I know about DCPs and stuff, that's a great turnaround time. Yeah. What I'm thinking is that, I don't know if it's HBO or if someone, there must be people on site in Park City to rewrap DCPs with logos. Oh, undoubtedly. Because... The, you couldn't like FTP mm-hmm. the file to a post house in LA, right. get the DCB rewrapped with the logo, even as just its own reel and then get it back to park city. I don't think you could even do that in six hours uh, because of the, the transfer time. Yeah. So there has to, there must be, so I don't know if do major places like HBO or Amazon or Netflix or whoever, do they bring encoders or does, <coughs> are there vendors who set up almost like pop-up shops hmm. on site and say like, all right, if you're going to bring, you know, if you're going to, you're planning on buying stuff here, bring a DCP of your logo. 
because the DCBs of the film are already right. there, and we'll turn around these rewraps and get them back out uh, into the theater down the street. I would assume the studio brings their own. Like if they're looking it's for a big expense. Well, it, you know, it's. Uh, I know that studios are usually so frugal. <laughs> but I mean, it's an opportunity for them to trumpet. Look at what we have. Like the minute they announce it, it becomes theirs. And yeah. they want people, they want people seeing it at the, at the festival to be talking about as much as the, as, as much about the film as also it is an HBO film now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. It does seem, it almost seems a little unseemly, to be honest with you. The idea that, like, I know that it's the nature of Sundance, but the idea that, like. They've already stuck their flag in it. That's, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say they branded it. Uh, It seems like that. Uh, all right, so you can find us at battleshipretention.com you, where you can find uh, movie reviews of literally everything I just talked about. Um, you can email us at david at battleshipretension.com <coughs> or tyler at battleshipretention.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at davypretension. And real quick, uh, on the website currently, I'm just looking. We've got new release uh, movie reviews this week uh, by me of Cold Pursuit and What Men Want by Scott of Holiday. Um, and you've got my review, my home video review of Cobra and, uh, Alex looking at, she's got to have it for his criterion prediction column. That's also, just some of the recent stuff. Uh, I was a guest on, I do movies badly, right. Talking about Harold Lloyd, a very in-depth conversation that I enjoyed quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I will talk about Harold, Lo- Harold Lloyd, any chance I get. And so, uh, so you can check that out. All right. And, uh, you're on Twitter at Tyler pretension. Your other podcast is called more than one lesson. Anything mm-hmm. going on there right now? Uh, not particularly. I will take the time to remind everyone everybody that that I am uh, putting out a new book at probably the end of March, early April. I haven't uh, figured it out quite yet. And uh, the book is now funded, so I have the the money to publish it. But I'm still taking pre-orders. So if you are interested in getting a signed copy of the book when it is first released, um, provided you live in the United States, because shipping overseas is uh, expensive, um, which is frustrating, but whatever. Uh, but yeah, so you can go to more than one lesson.com. You'll click on, uh, the button on the right side that says cinematic suffering and you can pre-order the book for $20 and that will get you a signed copy of the book. And, uh, you'll be in the special thanks at the end of the book as well. So, uh, so yeah, you can find that at more than one lesson.com. All right. Uh, don't forget to go to patreoncom slash battleship pretension. If you want to, uh, hear more exclusive, uh, exclusive content. Uh, thank you for listening. Is that the note we're ending on? You saying exclusive? We're ending on me saying thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.